Hello and welcome to this alternative audio commentary on The Sopranos, Season 1, Episode 1, the pilot episode, titled The Sopranos. My name's Rob Caravaggio, robcaravaggio.blogspot.com. I'm on Twitter, at robcaravaggio1. And if you'd like to synchronize your copy of The Sopranos, Season 1, Episode 1, to this commentary, I'll give you a countdown in a moment to help you do that. In the meantime, what you can do is locate the very start of the episode. I'm watching it on Region 1 DVD here, and there's an HBO original programming logo that comes right before the start of the episode. When that HBO logo fades to black, hit pause on your DVD, Blu-ray, or what have you, and that'll allow us all momentarily to hit the play button together and watch the episode in perfect synchronized harmony. Okay, if you've taken a moment to locate that sync point, once again, you should have it paused just after the HBO logo has faded off the screen. So, I'm going to say 3, 2, 1, play here, and that'll be your cue to hit the play button right along with me. Let's get our finger on the button there. Ready? 3, 2, 1, play. Okay, cool. Very exciting. Um, because, exciting because, I really love this show. Uh, I've never really seen a better drama on TV, and I've seen some good ones, particularly in recent years. But this is my favorite for reasons that are pretty plain to me. There's a lot of sort of cultural signifiers in The Sopranos that I recognize, um, being, uh, of Italian extraction, and um, and for and I love it for reasons that are sort of more mysterious and reasons that I want to sort of think about out loud as I go through the episode here. I'd like to. We'll see how this goes. I mean, I'd like to do more episodes um, because I do love it so much. I do think it's so rich and so textured and so um, you know for for all its um, dream sequences and. Uh, often pretty emphatic symbolism, I've always felt that The Sopranos wasn't precious about itself. It, it, it wasn't pretentious, uh, even in, in its most surreal and dream sequences. And it's, you know, I mean, there are references to Lacan, uh, you know, characters referencing Lacan in, in, uh, in The Sopranos. But I, I, it never was Precious. Uh, there you see David Chase wrote and direct the wrote, wrote created and directed the first episode, uh, created the series. He was one of the one of the better showrunners uh, ever, and uh, he wrote and directed the final episode of the series too, the um, controversial finale episode. Although I never understood why it's that controversial, it, it's pretty plain to me. I, I think it's plain, uh, trivially obvious what's going on in that finale and and what sort of happens and and what everything is sort of building up to so i i never understood why it was that complicated for people but uh i think people just didn't like the the way it went out generally but uh, 
but boy, talk about getting way ahead of yourself, um, talking about the finale, and here we are in episode one. Um, I believe The Sopranos runs for some 60 hours, and uh, there's the episode's number in the early 80s. I think there's like 81, 82, or 83 episodes. And uh, obviously, this is the first. I'll probably have uh, ample time to explain all the great things about this show and and why I love it so much. But but as a general matter, as we watch Dr. Melfi and and uh, Tony meet each other here for the first time, um, he of course was referred to Dr. Melfi by his neighbor, his over the fence neighbor, Dr. Cusimano, who he uh, fucks with, as he says uh, later on in the season. You know there are. You know, you could talk about the acting, you could talk about the directing, you could talk about just the, the, um, some of the things I've already mentioned, but, uh, the thing I, there are two things that I always come back to, uh, when I think about this show and how great it is. And when it reruns on HBO Signature, I always sort of flipping channels, I always stop to watch it. I, I never tire of watching these episodes. I mean, they're so, it, it's, it was one of the, you know, this is the so-called golden age of television. I feel like this was one of the first shows that really, um, was novelistic in in the best ways and, and really paid attention to itself in a really deliberate way. And, and like I said, without, uh, it, it's got gotten accused of being too heady and too pretentious sometimes, but, um, I don't think it is. I, I don't, I don't, I think that's a misreading of the show's intentions. Uh, famously, David Chase, when he pitched it originally to um, uh, David Chase, the show's creator, of course, when he pitched it to CBS, uh, I think it was CBS, he uh, he mentions that uh, he pitched it basically as a comedy that, you know, uh, to his mind, things had gotten so bad or, or you know, uh, so speaking in, in meta terms, I guess, things had gotten so bad in American culture and, and in the society that even a mobster, a, a tough, a tough hearted mobster has to go to therapy. And, and, that, and that's sort of a funny conceit. And I really admire that the Sopranos sort of, I would say in the first season, transcended that gimmick. And it is a gimmick, right? Uh, transcended that gimmick right away and became something really, uh, as I say, textured and, and really special. Um, Tony looking for the ducks here. Um, What I was going to say is that it transcended that conceit of mobster, you know, the analyze this conceit of the gimmick of a mobster going to therapy, psychotherapy. But it transcended it without ever abandoning it. I mean, the core of the show, the core relationship of the show is... um, to my mind, the the therapeutic relationship between Tony and and Dr. Melfi. And uh, that's why I was a little bit disappointed in the, the, again, to skip really far ahead, to to see that in the show's final episode, we don't have Dr. Melfi. She'd already, spoiler, had already sort of um, ditched Tony as a as a patient that uh meadows friend here hunter there she is uh is michelle chase who is david chase's daughter and it's sort of um for people who were real fanboys of the show like me it was a real sort of delicious moment when uh here she is in season one and i don't think we see her after very much after season one but um she reprises her role michelle chase as uh meadows high school friend um in the final episode of The Sopranos, uh, Made in America, she sort of comes back out of the blue. And, and since David Chase directed that episode and directed this, it's sort of uh, this cute little moment where people who are into the show know that 
that's his daughter and also just to see that character again remind us to remind us of the show's sort of beginnings um the biggest physical change in in the actors is of course uh robert eiler who plays tony's son anthony jr aj uh, here you see him as sort of a very boyish uh, with the hat backwards and he's a sort of strapping young man uh with a beard when the show ends in its sixth season sixth season so um uh you know one of many things you can track as the show goes on including gandolfini's weight uh he's much slimmer here than he ends up and uh what what an actor he was uh we just uh, at the time of this recording not to date the recording but we just lost him uh i guess it was three or four months ago um very suddenly obviously he died i think he had a coronary and uh he was in italy at the time but what an actor he was uh i guess the first time i saw i'll get into the episode obviously but uh and the, the sort of finer points of what's going on here is, is there's a whole lot of pipe being laid here in our first episode anyway what an actor right um I guess most people first saw him in True Romance, uh, the movie directed by Tony Scott that um, Quentin Tarantino, uh, uh, for which Quentin Tarantino wrote the screenplay. He uh, has that great fight scene with um, Patricia Arquette. And, um, you know, he's just a very recognizable, memorable, memorable guy. I don't know if that movie... I, I'm not sure which came first. I think it, I think that movie came before 12 Angry Men. Uh, the Billy Friedkin remake of 12 Angry Men, in which I think, I haven't seen that in so long, the remake, uh, Friedkin's remake, but uh, I believe it came after, and I believe um, he plays the uh, the Lee J. Cobb character, uh, the character Lee J. Cobb played in, in the original. I could be wrong about that, because there's an Italian-type character in the original, too, and maybe maybe he, uh, he was that guy. Uh, Obviously, I don't remember his performance very much in that movie, but he was he was uh, sort of a, a known character actor, a guy that, you know, you recognize from various parts that he'd been in TV and movies. And um, and then he gets this and there's nobody else that I mean, it's amazing. There's um, more than any more than like Cranston in Breaking Bad to me. There's nobody else that I can imagine even coming close to the uh to the to the weight no pun intended that Gandolfini brings to Tony Soprano it almost seems like stunt casting to have Lorraine Bracco uh i think the story goes legend has it that she read for Carmela she read for Edie Falco's Edie Falco's role and um was approached about playing Dr. Melfi instead and the thinking I believe David Chase says that the thinking is that well you know Melfi had uh or rather uh, Bracco had done the part of a, a mobster's wife before uh, it, in to an immortal if uh, or you know attained almost a cinematic immor immortality playing uh Karen Hill in um in Goodfellas and so um, they didn't want to be two on the nose because they already had several actors in the cast or I don't know if they already had cast them but they would have they would end up with several actors who had bit had recognizable parts in Goodfellas including of course Imperioli but also uh uh Tony Sirico who plays Paulie um 
and I was I've always been a little bit uh, felt that I mean Lorraine Bracco had got has gotten awards for playing Dr. Melfi and Melfi's really my favorite character but I've always felt like she's a little bit of a wobbly character at times uh, the show never really if you watch the whole series and you should the show kind of never really decides how much of Dr. Melfi's life outside of her office that it wants to show us and how important it is and it loops it in uh, especially in the second season but um, you know it's one of those things that uh, the show is sort of finding its way and uh, try. This is a show that really, um, you know, we, we look back on it as being very sure footed, but it really was it, it tried different things out. You know, how much of Dr. Melfi do we want to see? OK. And then in the third season, they kind of scale that back and uh, stuff like that. Um, there we see Christopher, uh, who is not Tony's nephew. He is Carmela's cousin and in uh classic Italian extended family terms uh Tony treats him like a nephew and so calls him a nephew and people you know I think uh, Hispanic people do this too you know you call people sometimes call people uncle they're not your uncle they're just a close relative or you call someone your nephew it's not really your nephew but uh this is something that uh, uh that some cultures uh, do and I think the the biggest culprits of that probably are uh, probably are Italians. Obviously, Satriales had not been called Satriales here uh, in the opening episode, uh, but it's sort of the same idea. A lot of the sets had not been constructed yet, um, and I think Chase says that's because when you shoot a pilot, that you know if it gets picked up, well then they'll build sets, but then you you work with what you whatever you can get exteriors. Uh, whatever studios are already uh, have sets built that you can use and and that sort of thing. Okay. What do we learn in this first episode? It, it's really interesting to me. Here, here comes uh, Stephen Van Zandt, uh, who to this point had been famous for, you know, uh, being not just a member of the E Street Band, but one of the guys who wrote the music with Bruce Springsteen. And, you know, I mean, Darkness on the Edge of Town and all these great albums, he, he had a major role in, in um, you know, writing that music and playing guitar with Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band for years, and he was famous for that. And I think his casting probably has something to do with um, David Chase's love of rock music. You hear in the in the pilot episode here, and and throughout the uh, throughout the series, that you'll hear a lot of popular music, a lot of rock music, a lot of characters listening to different rock music. Uh, Tony Soprano coming down the stairs, humming "Comfortably Numb," uh, this sort of thing. Um, and so I think maybe David Chase was a fan of the E Street Band and and sort of found a way to get this part for Steven Van Zant, who is sort of an interesting guy in his own right, but, but it's a really great character. And, and, um, the way the character speaks is really not far off from, um, Steven Van Zant's own demeanor. It's not, not much. It's, it's not a crazy performance. He's, he's sort of doing himself with a, with a very dark black wig. <laughs> yeah. Um, what do we learn 
in this episode. As I was going to say, it's noteworthy that this episode doesn't really work the way even the second episode works. Um, there are certain, there's a lot of voiceover going on. There's a lot of focus. The voiceover really sets us into Tony's head and Tony's point of view. And the show would, would not always be about Tony and his point of view. But, but this pilot really, really, um, you know, he's, he's the main attraction here. And, and, you know, there are whole episodes where he's sort of, uh, I wouldn't say in the background, but I mean, there are whole episodes where he's not the main attraction of the episode um, uh, later in the series. Um, so one of the things that Chase does here in the pilot is um, the use of music is sort of um, more emphatic than we're used to seeing. Uh, the pace is a little bit quicker. They're, they're laying pipe covering a lot of ground. And really, it's, it's I guess, the biggest, the most glaring thing that's different about the pilot from the rest of the series is that, that voiceover. I don't think we ever have it again. They toyed with the idea, uh, according to my coffee table book about the Sopranos, which uh, my sister bought for me for my birthday or for Christmas or my birthday um, years ago. According to that book... Um, they wondered after the you know writing writing the pilot or or arcing out the um first 13 episodes they wondered about whether or not they should um use this cert, uh, a certain device which which I can understand why they didn't use it I'm glad they didn't use it this device of everything that we see on the show is sort of talked about by Tony in retrospect as he tells it to Melfi but um, uh, the show is has so many characters and is so expansive, and not and, and even in the first, even in the second episode, you know, not everything that's important happens to Tony or with Tony in the room. And so, you know, there there are probably five or ten good reasons why they didn't use that device. And it's a it's a it's sort of pushing the gimmick of the the therapy too far. Um, so it's it's they wisely didn't do that. Nancy Merchand uh, uh, playing um, Livia Soprano, Tony's mother. The show is, um, you know, I almost said pop psychology here. The show is, is really just smart about psychology, particularly clinical psychology in general. David Chase has openly spoken about how he's sort of has been to psychotherapy and, and benefited from it in some ways and has some criticisms of it in other ways. But... Um, this whole, uh, particularly the psychological implications of uh, not so much childhood, but the psycho psychological way, the the psychological ways in which relationships affect us, and the way that uh, all humans sort of tend to process relationships, particularly close relationships, familial relationships. We're seeing Tony here uh, uh, in a characteristic scene with his mother. The, she's a difficult woman, as he'll later say, and and they can't really have a conversation that isn't based in some kind of grievance, normal, uh, usually on his mother's part. She's a, a, a difficult woman, a, a high-maintenance woman, a woman who's a, a chronic complainer, who uh, is a needler, who, uh, who uh, always... Uh, expresses herself in, in terms of a, a criticism or grievance and um and 
the ways in which that would affect her her kids, her son, her son, are um, numerous, and the show sort of bears that out. And right away here, we we see you know, uh, and it's it's not just through his appointments with Doctor Melfi, but you know, we come to see that <laughs> having a mother like that would make a man like Tony. Um, have certain personality traits perhaps and and uh and it'll affect someone like his sister a little bit differently uh and that the characters sort of talk about this stuff openly and it's it's really um it can be pretty heady stuff and i think the show always handles it by um uh, most of the time handles it by showing rather than telling uh a lot of times it'll have characters sort of discussing this stuff but they just dis- normally they discuss it in a way that is so funny <laughs> Tony with his ducks here. They normally they discuss those sort of heady things in a way that's so funny or so um, unusual that that itself it makes everything they're saying more palatable uh, uh, or just plain appealing. Looks like a cigar is a little bit frayed there. Here comes one of many panic attacks. Like the music here is a little bit emphatic and and the. Um, the tone of all this is, a, I think, a little bit more comic, comedic, or uh, not ironic, but uh, a little, uh, even a little bit more um, uh, Saturday Night Live sketch uh, than uh, the show would end up being. Uh, I like the tone the show sort of found for itself. I don't like this tone as much. I think it's a very strong pilot, but it's not anywhere near as strong as where the show would go. You know, some, some great shows, the pilot is sort of the greatest episode, you know, um, uh, there's a lot of good hooks in this pilot, but it's just, um, you know, this is a show that really mastered the tone, uh, that it created for itself so much so that, um, you know, you can count the endless number of shows since that have copied or, or tried to sort of create, uh, uh, interesting milieu the way that, the way that this show did and made it look pretty effortless too. A lot of it has to do with the performances. Um, uh, you know, Gandolfini from the word go in this first episode really, um, really owns this character. I mean, um, there's a, there's a, a wholesale realism to all, uh, to all the main characters, particularly these two Falco and Gandolfini. Uh, where they they embody, and especially with the way they converse and these little quirks that they have, these little ways of speaking, these um, the show has this running gag of malapropisms, of um, particularly uh, the little Carmine character, people misstating things or misunderstanding things in these sort of ways that are more adorable than the writers sort of making fun of a stupid person or an ignorant person. Um, and, and you just... Uh, you know, there's not a moment in the entire series where you don't completely buy that Edie Falco is this woman and that Gandolfini is this this guy, uh, this very complicated mob boss. There are two things um, before we uh, uh, before I sort of sort of go a little bit deeper into this episode and figure out. Uh, uh, think out loud about what we learn and, and uh, what things are set up and what things are set up that aren't followed up on 
later in the series. I think this is the first time we see, first and only time we see Chris doing some kind of martial arts here. It's a very nice, this is a very dark uh, sort of lighting here in, in the uh, pork shop. Um, one of the cool things about the show is uh, that people said, especially when it came out, was how much like a good movie it was. And that's sort of what um, uh, Chase and, and the people who created the show were, were going for. The two things that I think, uh, to me, are the most interesting things, besides the performances in The Sopranos, are um, this, firstly, the sense of the surreal that this show has, or a sense for the surreal, an appreciation for the surreal, uh, a fearlessness um, when it comes to injecting things that are surreal. I'm not just talking about the many dream sequences in the show. I'm talking about surreal just in everyday life. Bizarreness, strangeness. Uh, strangeness is a word I always come back to. I, I like when movies sort of embrace the strangeness of life, especially when they're going for realism. People say weird things. Um, people are not always what you think they are. People are not always one thing. And sometimes someone that you think is a brute or a boorish sort of gangster will say something really enlightened or something that seems enlightened, but is really dumb. Uh, and, uh, or, or something just strange, like, uh, there's going to be a moment here. Uh, there's Bogart, Dean Martin, and, uh, my favorite actor, Edward G. Robinson. Um, yeah, this little moment where he looks at the pig's heads there. I mean, just this, that's kind of what I'm talking about, but this appreciation for the surreal is a big part of, would become a big part of the show. And I think that's what c captured, I mean, a lot of people just like the genre of the show. A lot of people who like the show just like, were frankly Italian people who like to see their, the nitty gritty of their culture. You know, people saying things like Bafangul on, on primetime television, you know, um, or schifuza, you know, all these Italian words that, and the show never explains to you what they are. You get it from the context most of the time. But that, yeah, that, that, um, that real antenna for the surreal is, is one of the things that I admire about the Sopranos. And the other thing that I, that I love, uh, of course, Father Phil here, by the way, would be played by another actor uh, after the pilot. The other thing is the show's sense of humor. Um, the way it uh, really manages the humor. And um, there are big laughs in the show. And they always seem so organic. So coming out of the reality of these characters and what people like this are like. And, and it never seems um, like the show, again, is making fun of the characters or... or, or or having fun at anyone's expense. Uh, there's a there's a lot of great jokes in this show, and a lot of really funny ha-ha moments. And I think the show, as there are in life, you know, and I think the show man has always managed that very well. I mean, you you see David Chase interviewed, he doesn't seem like a <laughs> like a jokester, but, uh, but maybe that's the key, you know, maybe the key is sort of this, this sort of sober, when you look at life soberly, or you are a sober person, you, you tend to appreciate, uh, maybe humor in a different way. And, and, um, and it's really great. Uh, so I really appreciate the humor in the show. That moment we just had, uh, to get into the episode here, 
that moment we just had with Carmela, she has the priest over, and already we see this thing being set up of the priest, uh, Father Phil Antantola, and her having this quasi-flirtation, this chaste sort of quasi-courtship. Um, there you go, Tufts University. Um, and calls her hon. Uh, and we have this great moment with Carmela that sets up her character, makes it clear who she is. Now, we already had that moment in the MRI machine where she tells Tony, the difference between you and me is that you're going to hell when you die. Now, that sets up something that's going to become integral to her character throughout the series, which is this weird relationship she has to the Catholic Church and the way she processes uh, her religious her religious attitude in general and her religious consciousness, Right. Um, but th then she's got a priest over and she thinks nothing. I mean, we see that she's fully invested in this life as the, the underbosses of the mafia's wife, uh, as the wife of a, of a mafia guy. She's, she knows who she married and she goes and she gets that, that, uh, big, big, uh, firearm, uh, out of the hiding place immediately when she hears trouble. I mean, she's not, she's not a, a shrinking daisy. I went to college for I think he says a semester and a half, so I understand Freud. That, that that's a great example of some of just you know a really a really funny and a really '90s moment. You know, um, this show I think is part of the reason it was so successful. It was so of its time. I mean, this is really you know this this premieres in '99. It really becomes a thing, uh, a cultural phenomenon in the aughts, and this show just. Um, is so of its time. The characters speak the way people, the way we spoke in the late 90s, early aughts. Uh, what Tony just said, you know, they, they use a vocabulary that is varied and, and media-rich, or media-infused, infused with these terms that we learn from media. You know, uh, very, very 90s, very early aughts, right? Uh, here's another sort of dark comedy scene. Getting rid of a body. Um, what, what Tony says there when he walks out on Melfi, one of many times he'll walk out on Dr. Melfi, <laughs> what he says there is very important um, and uh, to the show, and that is um, he, he's pining for this past uh, of, uh, you know, whatever happened to the strong silent type? It, it sounds almost like he's criticizing himself. Whatever happened to the strong, to the Gary Cooper? You know, they, he didn't complain, he just did his job, and he's, he's really, he's really... Um, angry at himself for for being in psychotherapy um but that that's part of the tony's problem is that he he can't ever really process his problems in a in a healthy way <laughs> he's he's always confused about everything and and um particularly his identity and and his family and You know, the show is, is, um, has been said to be about two families, right? He has this mob family and his other family. But as the show moves on, you really see that it's, 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 uh, like I say, Carmela's fully invested in, in his life as a mafia boss. Uh, he, he's not the mafia boss in this pilot, but he becomes the, the boss, the street boss. Um, it, it, and we learn very quickly, just like, uh, Karen Hill says in Goodfellas, um, we were always together. It was always all of us. You know, there, there's really no separation between his mob life and his family life, uh, in a sense. 
very appropriately, I'm drinking uh, some espresso as I uh, watch this episode. This sort of master shot here is um, a little bit, you know, another way in which I think we cut in here. I mean, another way in which I think the show has a different sort of vibe to it in its pilot episode. Um, but it's also very effective <laughs> another panic attack. It's also very effective in its pilot episode in uh, introducing all these characters and who they are and who they are to each other. Um, all inside this, this one hour, you know, um, it's very important. It's already set up, you know, uh, what we already know, what kind of person his wife is, um, what their relationship is like. Uh, you know, again, she's not, she's not, uh, sitting at home and knitting, wondering about whether her husband is out breaking the law. She knows what, she knows who he, I mean, she'll say later, you know, she knows who she married. Um, she's not a shrinking violet. Uh, and we know, uh, we, we know the mother, we know what the kids are like. Very cool. I mean, the show's big strength other than this man right here is, is absolutely the writing. Here, the uh, the resentment Tony has for his mother and uh, the way she sees him uh, or he sees her as sort of need someone who needled and wore down his father the way that she needles him. We come to learn that uh, Tony has two sisters, one who sort of stayed in Jersey and I think or I think lives uh, something like a 40 minute drive away uh, might be a little more than that. And then, of course, Janice, the Aida Turturro character, who is the free-spirited sister who is, uh, at this point in the show, living in Seattle and uh, emerges, uh, uh, will emerge very soon in the show. Uh, and we get to, we never really meet the other sister, but we meet Janice a lot. And we, I mean, we see the other sister, but we never spend time with her and see what she's like. But uh, again, you know, the different ways in which this mother has, a, has affected them. Here is, I think, you know, the focus again here is, it's, it's all on Tony, right? Ah, looking at Gandolfini here too. I mean, I, I, you just, you just miss him. Uh, he, he went uh, far too soon. Um, it's amazing to me how these scenes where the focus is on Tony, but we really learn a whole lot about Dr. Melfi. Um the fact that she sees him, I mean, later in the show, it becomes clear that um, uh, Dr. Elliot Kupferberg and a couple of her other colleagues wouldn't dream of treating someone like Tony. Um, for various reasons, they don't want to treat a mobster. Uh, you know, for reasons personal and ethical or professional or whatever. Tony makes reference to the fact that he... He chose to see Dr. Melfi. He, uh, she was recommended to him, but but he could he could choose between, you know, I think three doctors and two of them were this or that. And he says he chose Dr. Melfi because she was Italian. And so the fact that she sees him is significant. Maybe it has to do with the fact that she's Italian, too. Um, and the fact that she is very good at doing that therapist's poker face. Um, she doesn't flinch when he talks about getting pinched and the FBI and, 
and she just, uh, at least for the time being, um, you know, she pushes back a lot on him, especially uh, 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 late in the series. But, you know, she doesn't, like I say, she doesn't flinch. She do, she doesn't um, urge him to stop being a criminal, you know. Uh, and she's um, always uh, ever conflicted. It's what makes her storyline, part of what makes the relationship between her and Tony, uh, I think, so important to the show is that she's constantly ethically, morally, existentially conflicted about not just uh, being Tony's physician or psychiatrist, but she's conflicted about her emotional relationship to Tony. Um, uh, they go through a lot together, not all of it in a therapeutic setting. And sort of Tony, um, they become attached to each other in a number of ways. That's Jerry Adler there on the right, uh, who uh, plays Hesh. And uh, the Jewish, uh, I, I say that because they make a whole thing of him being Jewish at several points, but uh, the, the Jewish associate of the mob who was beloved of Tony's father, beloved by Tony's father and, and therefore beloved of, of Tony. Um, just pick up my pencil here. It's very cool. Um, I should say for... for um, maybe newcomers to the show or people who are not maybe as well versed in the, in the saga as I am. Let me give you the, the 30 second basic framework of what's going on here. And they, 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 um, they do a good job of, of, um, educating the audience in the first few episodes about who's who and backstories and what you need to know. And, um, Tony Soprano was the son of a mafia uh, boss, uh, Johnny Soprano. And uh, his father is, is now dead. The mother is obviously still alive. This is a great uh, scene, by the way, between Meadow, uh, Jamie Lynn Sigler, and, um, and Carmela. Uh, the show is always really smart. I mean, it's one of the best shows, uh, one of the most realistic uh, depictions of teenagers at this point you know late 90s early aughts once again yeah one i love that look uh, one of the great um depictions of teenage show is always very smart about teenagers and kids and how they act and how they talk and what they do and i don't see that written about enough for people i don't remember people talking about that enough just the just how smart this show was about kids and the way they relate to their parents and how kids become spoiled, etc. So, as I was saying, uh, here's Artie Bucco. Uh, Tony was the son of the mob boss, his father's dead, um, and he has uh, grown up in this lifestyle, and so uh, from a very young age, uh, you know, he was robbing card games when he was a kid, um, we, we come to learn. And so he had uh, very few qualms about uh, becoming, uh, at this point, I think he's, at this point, he might be a capo regime. He becomes underboss when I think Jackie April dies. Jackie April is not dead yet. Uh, Jackie April 
at this point in the pilot, uh, we haven't even met Jackie Aprile. Jackie Aprile is the head of the family. Tony is, I think, a capo or a, uh, a an underboss, and and Junior Uncle June is sort of uh, we've met him already in the pilot. Is just underneath uh, uh, Jackie, I believe. And so that's where the story starts, is Tony is not quite the boss yet, but he sort of uh, is a top guy who's sort of running the streets. I like that we spend a little time here in the restaurant with uh, Artie and Charmaine. Um, again, you know, we, we th- th- these two are so great together, too. They, we, we learn so much just through these little references made. Um, we already know that Artie and Tony have known each other since they were in elementary school. Uh, and we know this will be important come, uh, I think episode 10 in the series, in the, in the season, we know that Artie is sort of a straight guy, uh, a straight guy, quotation marks. Uh, he's not a gangster, but he's friends. He's an associate with Tony and he's an old friend of Tony. He knew Tony before he was Tony. And so he's yet another character who's conflicted. Uh, and, and doesn't want to be too sullied by this relationship. Um, one of the char- uh, one of the sort of, uh, most famous characters on the Soprano there on the Sopranos is on the right here. Uh, there he is, uh, Vincent Pastore playing, uh, Sal Bonpensera, uh, Big Pussy. Uh, and, and you hear that and you know, uh, you know, it's a Sopranos. Evidently, there were real gangsters called Big Pussy, Little Pussy. But um, years ago. Uh, and so that I think that's where Chase got the idea. Uh, beautiful shot here, too. Um, I, I, I've always sort of chuckled at the fact that um, everybody knows, people who don't even watch the show know about Big Pussy. Uh, that there was this character, Big Pussy, and and uh, Vincent Pastore is is famous for playing Big Pussy, and really famous for nothing but playing Big Pussy. And he's not in the show that long. Uh, I think the I think they whack him out, uh, which is the the terminology the show would use. Uh, they I think they kill him uh, second season. Um, and uh, if you counted his total screen time, you'd you'd be surprised but but i think it's just that you'd be surprised how uh insignificant it is it's not as much screen time as you'd think given how famous the character is but i think it's that name that people remember i mentioned um the show always is very good at these short little scenes uh, always giving characters something interesting to do or something funny to do. Always in a interesting location like this. Um, you know, there's there's never anything boring about where the characters are, what they're doing, what they're saying. You see, there's always something interesting in the background. Those guys with the basketball there. Um, it's yet another thing to adore about this show. Drea De Mateo there. Um, I don't know if this guy is supposed to be Melfi's husband because a different actor 
plays her ex-husband later in the series, or if this guy is a date that Melfi is is on. Uh, it's a show uh, that rewards paying attention. Tony here with the Gumana. Um, <laughs> uh, it's a show uh, that really rewards paying attention, especially if you're nuts about it and you, you get off on noticing all the little quirks that they throw in for you and all the little all the little callbacks. This is a show that's, if you really pay attention and you get into the characters, it's rife with callbacks and jokes that jokes that call back to something that happened in season one. Uh, it's like Breaking Bad in that way. Uh, it, it sort of uses every part of the buffalo. And um, <laughs> uh, making it clear that Tony Soprano is famous here, uh, that little exchange. And if you notice here, Tony uh, shows up to the restaurant uh, with his uh, his gumana, uh, his girlfriend, uh, uh, who, as uh, they used to say in the newspapers, with a woman who is not his wife. Um, the boat is called the Stugats. There's little details like that that are just funny, especially if you're Italian. Um, he shows up with his Russian girlfriend, who will, yet another character, who will be played by a different actor, uh, shortly after the pilot, he shows up with, so he shows up with the girlfriend later in the, in this episode, later he'll show up to the, the same restaurant with his wife and the same maitre d' will say, oh, Mr. Tony, we haven't seen you in such a long time. Oh, here it is right here. Uh, we haven't seen you in such a long time. And it, it's, if you're paying attention, uh, you realize that Tony is sort of master of his universe. He he uh, he has arranged or or probably just tipped the guy out. You know, paid this major D to say something like that when he shows up with his wife. Um, that's a whole thing, and the the whole infidelity thing is sort of fascinating to think about in this movie. Um, the idea of uh, you know one of the things that this show is always thinking about. I said it's very much of its time. And one of the things that the show is thinking about, uh, being of its time, is how outdated and outmoded the mafia and the idea of the mafia and these customs of the mafia are, um, just how anachronistic and stupid they are. Um, and so one of the things that's hard to swallow, this being a show that comes along in the late 90s and becomes huge in the aughts, um, is, is just... It's hard for us in in that time period, in this time period, to to wrap our head around a wife who's sort of not not okay with his with her husband sleeping around, but who has this attachment to a culture of, you know, um, uh, he what he does with his time is what he does, and it's futile to try and stop him as long as he's a good provider and comes home to you. Uh, you know, you, you can live in a big house and, you know, that's sort of Carmela's, uh, deal. <laughs> and it's, especially when we come to like Carmela and see, see what a smart and sort of basically good person she is. Um, it, it it's hard to wrap our heads around someone who could, who could be that way, who could have these two sides of her brain going. 
I remember I was on board with The Sopranos right when it came out. Um, I, I didn't watch it the night it premiered. That's that's one of the reasons I think the show got big. Same reason the show, the Larry Sanders show got big. These are HBO shows. And unlike many of the popular television shows of this time, um, you know, if, if you saw an episode of uh, of uh, of Friends or something uh, on NBC, if you wanted to see that episode again, you'd have to wait until they reran it. And that might be weeks or months. If you're home that night, uh, you know, TiVo and, you know, video cassettes were always sketchy and uh, TiVo, I think, was in its infancy. But, you know, The Sopranos benefited like the Larry Sanders show did uh, from the fact that it was on HBO. And anyone who's uh, a viewer of HBO knows that they'll show something for the first time on a on a Sunday night, say, and it will be replayed later that night, uh, tomorrow. Uh, now we have on demand, of course, so you can watch it anytime, but they replay it, you know, periodically throughout the coming week. So people could rewatch the Sopranos, uh, uh, just by serendipity, chipping, flipping channels, or because they, you know, made appointment viewing to, to what people could rewatch it and really appreciate it again. And, uh, I think that has a lot to do with it, uh, with, with people growing to love it because there are all kinds of little things that you see, uh, not even because you're watching carefully, but just because you've, if you watch the episode twice, you'll catch something you didn't catch. We all, we all have experienced that, right? A couple of great scenes I've, I've spoken over here. One is the, a really well-written scene in which uh, in which Tony uh, reveals to Carmelo that he's seeing a psychiatrist, a therapist, doesn't reveal that it's a, a woman, uh, that she is a woman, but reveals that he's seeing a therapist and, and expects, I don't know, what, he, what kind of reaction he expects, a negative one perhaps, and she's just over the moon, I'm so happy, this is so great, and there again, you know, it, it's... Uh, it's this great scene where um, we see that Carmela is modern in her attitude about that. You know, therapy's a good thing. My husband's going to therapy. That's great. Um, but um, Tony maybe expected a more, an attitude like his mob associates would have, which is an outdated sort of uh, only crazy people go to therapy and what's wrong with you and you're not discussing family business in there, are you? That sort of thing. And the other, the other great scene I spoke over was the uh, Meadows volleyball game, where they're discussing they're discussing burning down a restaurant while at a kid's volleyball game. I mean, that's just that's the kind of dis, um, uh, juxtaposition that the show really, really is does beautifully. Uh, is this idea that? Um, these guys have lives that are, and Goodfellas and other ones, you know, other shows get into this, but these, this idea that these guys have lives and they're dads. No, no, they're real dads. They go to games and discuss killing people and blowing up restaurants while at the games. Now, uh, by the way, this shot of Silvio walking away from the restaurant and, and uh, it's going to explode here in a moment. That shot, uh, it does, we don't see the explosion with, with Stevie Van Zant in the shop, but I always thought that maybe they were cribbing uh, 
Mean Streets a little bit there. The first time we see the Johnny Boy character in Scorsese's Mean Streets, he's sort of walking away from a mailbox that he had just thrown a stick of dynamite in or something. <laughs> the mailbox explodes. This is a similar sort of shot. <clears throat> Dr. Melfi is my favorite character, and the reason is is that she's the character who is, I think, the most, she's the most moral. I mean, she, you know, she really has a sense of what's right and what's ethical and what's on it. She's always very clear-headed she knows what's right and what's wrong and she chooses a lot of time to do the thing that's not quite right you know she knows she should report something or other she knows she should handle something with tony or even in her personal life with her she knows she should do it a different way and she kind of doesn't um and she uh, sometimes we hear the rationale sometimes sometimes she don't but she's constantly constantly having to make these choices and i think the the show is very observant about how people explain themselves to themselves, if that makes any sense. And I think the best example of that on the show is Dr. Melfi. They really have great, uh, I don't know that it's even chemistry, but I think they have a, a, a there's a way that um, Gandolfini and Bracco in these uh in these therapy scenes, uh, especially when Tony becomes agitated, excited, angry, or even violent. Um, there's a way that, that they, their line readings kind of have this, uh, this rolling or, or ebb and flow to them where, um, they're talking about something mundane or there, there's always a tension there. I'm, uh, I'm, rubbing my fingers together in the air for some reason to indicate that there's this palpable thing, uh, the way they play these scenes. There's, there's always something about to happen. Either Melfi, you see her sitting forward there, there's either a breakthrough that she's anticipating or, or, uh, or, uh, or something Tony's anticipating, uh, you know, when he becomes violent, it, I think, uh, you know, actors call, and call that, I've heard actors call that uh, just a, a crackle, you know, uh, playing a scene where it, where it crackles. And, and two people sitting in chairs speaking in soft voices is not always something you expect to crackle. But they, you know, Bracco's very good at reacting to him, too. I think the faces she makes, I and mean, she really seems like someone who's been practicing psychiatry a long time and and uh, she has a hard uh, uh, I'm talking about the character Melfi here she has a hard time hiding her horror sometimes um, because Tony says horrible things and recounts horrible things quite a lot and speaks in a certain code and one of the things a friend of mine and I a friend of mine I have a, a very dear friend who is uh, a very, very good friend of mine and very Italian, uh, as Italian as I am. <laughs> uh, I mean, grew up in Bensonhurst, the whole nine. 
And um, one of the things we always talk about when we talk about the show, uh, The Sopranos, is how hungry it makes us. How much it how how much it wants us. It makes us want to go to our to our grandmother's house and eat. Um, you know, uh, the show, the show is constantly using food, uh, as a signifier of Italian culture, but also as a way for characters to relate to each other. Carmela constantly relates to people through her cooking. Um, Tony is constantly stuffing his face. Uh, and it's really great. You know, um, this idea of this man who is, um, has voracious appetites and, and is so, so flagrantly carnal but um but so dapper too and you know with the pinky rings and the and the nice suits and um you know it's it's that thing again of where the uh, the show manages to make these characters archetypes of uh very masculine mafiosos you know again the pinky rings the pressed suits the uh uh, all of the accoutrement of being a gangster and also manages to show us that they are, they really are regular people. This is a suburban barbecue. You know, he is a real dad. His kids are real brats. Um, he has to deal with them. They take up more time than his, uh, mafia life does. This is a great, uh, and one that I think gets pointed out in the special features of the Blu-ray here, or the DVD, a great sort of um, moment that sets the series off, or shows us what the series is going to be. Tony just flies into a rage here, which is something he does a lot. This is one of many times where he'll just (laughs) grab Christopher. Um, Yeah, see, that that turning on a dime is what Gandolfini did so well. Um, The man had such a sweet smile and such a boyish sort of grin and and this jubilant laughter when he would laugh. Uh, He would look like a little boy when he laughed, like a delighted little boy. There are scenes uh, throughout the show where he's driving and uh, chasing someone in his car or getting a blowjob in the car or he's just run over someone that he wanted to run over and he's giggling and it, and it's just he's gleeful and and uh melfi says later in the series he seems sometimes he seems so uh you know like a little boy and yet he's uh gandolfini is so good also at what you just saw there so good at being not just a tough guy but a vicious guy a guy who will, um, you know, cut your dick off. Uh, a guy who will uh, choke you to death with a ligature. Um, a guy who will shoot you in the back of the head if you if he feels you have it coming. And having an actor that can really sell both of those is, I th- especially in this sort of genre, is really kind of kind of rare. The show, uh, here's another way, as we watch Dominic Cianese here, it reminds me that the show is also of its time in a very specific way, and that is sort of with these meta-references. The show is, it's, and see if you can follow this train of thought, uh, the show is itself a reference to 
mafia movies and maf- depictions of the mob in American culture, in culture, right? Um, uh, the characters themselves, uh, you know, just by being a mafia uh, story and by using some of those tropes, the show is itself referencing that, but also the characters themselves uh, being of their time, being in the late 90s, early aughts, uh, a time of media saturation. And we all have these, again, these words, these categories, these these images floating around in our heads because of uh, how, um, how uh, invasive media has become that the characters themselves reference mafia movies and see themselves in those terms. And, you know, um, they're constantly referencing the Godfather and, and other mafia movies and, and uh, joking about it and referencing each other, uh, refer- making these references to each other and, and, uh, and making references to other cultural things too, in ways that are often funny. And um, that was really something I hadn't seen in a, I guess uh, I just saw there that David Chase's daughter is not, her last name isn't Chase, evidently, uh, in the credits there. But uh, I do know that that was his daughter playing Hunter. Anyway, that is something that I had not ever, 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 ever seen in a mafia movie or a depiction uh, of the mob uh, you know, on TV or film is, is this sort of sense of humor where the, the characters themselves are, are referencing, uh, these pop culture depictions of the mob and, and, uh, use, use that as a kind of second vocabulary to describe what they're doing. I mean, the show is very funny in that respect. And, um, uh, there, there are actually not a lot of great laughs in the pilot that we just saw, but throughout the first season, there are some truly, uh, haha moments uh, that I think we'll get to. Uh, I'll get to because I plan on um, I plan on doing some more episodes. I, I don't think I've uh, uh, scratched the surface here. Um, but that was episode one, the pilot. It is uh, not even one of my favorite episodes. And you know, rewatching it again here, I'm reminded of how great it is. But um, I plan on doing another one. So. Thank you for listening. I'm on Twitter at Rob Caravaggio one. If you want to yell at me, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.